You're listening to Enabled, a podcast brought to you by Ability Advocators. Hello and welcome to Enabled, the podcast where we talk about, normalise and celebrate disability and mental health. We've got some big guns in the studio with us today, Colin. I'm not talking to you. Why? You what? should just diss me. Right Come from the on. Start. That's what we do. That's our thing. <sighs> Might be for you. Aww. I have feelings. Well, here's the place to talk about them, I suppose. Let's let's dig into that because today we have two legends of the Mid-North Coast uh, lifeline. We have Kelly Sadie and Di Bannister, mm-hmm. not to be confused with Lannister from Game of Thrones, which mm. is who I had you pegged as previously. How are you guys? Welcome. Oh, really Thank good. You. Thank yeah. you. Awesome. Thanks for having us. No worries. So, Kelly, you are the Midcoast Suicide Prevention and Postvention Manager. Postvention is a very interesting aspect of that title that I want to get into in a little minute. And, Di, you are one of Lifeline's trainers. Mm-hmm. Before I met you, you were described to me by a very seasoned professional oh. in the field as the best trainer oh. he's ever had. Ever? Mm. Ever. Yep. That's big. That's, That's very a true. strong accolade. Mm. So very high praise. So I'm excited. Oh. We're very excited uh, to have you on the show. We love what Lifeline is all about. And today we're talking about asking for help, mm. which kind of seems it's almost a little anticlimactic sometimes mm. to me. I, it doesn't seem like that big a deal. But I, I keep coming back to something that I heard earlier in the year. It's probably the best parenting advice I've ever heard. And it was basically about what to do if you lose your child in a public space. Um, You might have heard of it. It was called the looking loudly Mm. method. And so effectively what the advice is, is if you you are in that horrifying scenario where you're in a public space, you're at the shops, you're at a festival, wherever, and you lose your child, don't search for them quietly. Immediately Mm. start looking for them loudly and do it in a way that engages other people to help you. Mm. So what that might look like, you might immediately start yelling. Mm. I'm looking for a four-year-old boy. His name is Ben. He has brown hair, red shirt, black shorts, white shoes. And you continue yelling that as you're searching. And then all of a sudden, everybody within hearing distance of you is suddenly helping you. You are covering more space. You've got more eyes. And God forbid you are in that nightmare scenario where someone is trying to abduct your child Mm -hmm. suddenly there's a lot of eyes there's a lot of people looking for this kid they are more likely to just drop them and leave Mm -hmm. and when I heard that advice I was really struck by two things first of all how painfully obvious it seems after you've heard it you think well of course but it's also just incredibly counterintuitive because I've seen people lose their child yes and you see them silently retracing their steps, checking this aisle, checking that aisle, and maybe as panic starts to build, they might start yelling in, but they're still looking alone. Yes. I have never seen anybody ask for help. And this is like the moment of moments when you Mm. want your child back at any cost. And somehow our default setting of just not wanting to ask for help Mm. overrides us, even in that essential moment. What's going on? Why is it so hard to ask for help? We weren't actually taught to ask for help when we were kids. We were taught to put our hand up and ask to go to the toilet. But in an environment, we weren't actually taught to put our hand up and say, ask for help when we weren't feeling so good or I feel a bit strange or I'm nervous about this. Mm. Um, We weren't weren't taught that. We weren't taught it and, in fact, we were taught the opposite. Yeah. Don't make a scene. It's probably nothing. It's all right. We'll find him, you know, blah, blah, blah. 
with your most precious thing in the whole world. Exactly. Wow, that is a big insight into how hard it is to ask for help. And I think that when you said not making a scene, I feel like for me that's probably my default setting is I don't want to draw attention to the situation. It's considered impolite Mm. to make a scene, isn't it? Impolite and also think of T-shirts that you've seen recently. Like Mm. I go to Bali and I see them there. Suck it up. Right. Build a bridge. Take some concrete. Yeah. You know, you laugh when you see them and I have laughed and thought, you know, But really there's a message in that that our community actually embraces. Yeah, absolutely. We make T-shirts with it. So subliminally we're being told that asking for help is what, weak? Mm. Uh, Shame and guilt come a lot into it as well. So imagine that mum looking for her child. Her first initial thoughts, I've stuffed up. I I took my eyes off them for one nanosecond and lost them. So I'm a bad mum. So if I ask for help, that's going to expose me. Yes. As to people say, why why did you lose yeah. your child? Or yeah. after tell my husband about this. Right. So yeah. the guilt what and the shame comes in first before asking for help. Yeah. And the other thing was at what cost? Mm. Societally, if we ask for help, are we seen to be less than? Mm-hmm. Is our job at risk? Is yeah. our even somebody brought up insurance and yes. said, if I ask for help and it's on my medical record that I've had help for mental health issues, yep. does that affect my insurance? Yeah. It was a good conversation to have that what might we lose by asking for help, but there's a better conversation to have is what can we gain yes. by being a, a better at asking for help. That's so interesting though that you that idea that even at a structural level mm. we live in a society that penalises asking for help. Mm. I mean it, it's that endemic, it's that ingrained from a position of, I mean, you said before, Kelly, that we're not taught how to ask for help. Does it start with seeing dad muddle through like refusing to ask for directions and I don't care how long it takes us to mm. get there, I'm going to get there myself. Or mum, th- this is a very terrible sort of archetypes <laughs> of, you know, masculine and feminine roles, I apologise, but, you know, mum in the kitchen just doing it all herself because mm. it's easier than mm. trying to mm. get someone in. Mm. With children, we're not even getting modelling of asking yes. for help. I know, for example, in my own life, I need to construct a trampoline for my children and I can't do that myself. And I've even had friends say to me, don't do it yourself, let us know, we'll send our husbands. Like yeah. they will come and help you. So I've been given permission. You can, Colin's Why gonna, the husband? Oh, I thought you were about to volunteer. <laughs> I'll volunteer. Right. I'll come around and put the trampoline up. Oh, thanks, Even though Sarah. she dissed you earlier. You I know. know. That's yeah, amazing. Is, it's a, it's Very a, well it's done. It's a strong bond. It's a, And I think what a lot of people think is I'm not going to ask for help because others need it before me. Like I'll get through this. It's just, you know, I'll I'll be fine on my own. Um, I don't want to clog up the service or it's not bad enough for this. Yeah, so that prevents a lot of people reaching out. That's another one that we hear a lot. Mm. There's always somebody worse off, you know, I'm I'm doing okay. But again, Mm. it goes back in a way to that idea that as a society we think that we value Mm. that tough exterior Mm. that tough get Mm. on and do it Mm. why don't we value the idea that people can ask and and be vulnerable when it's appropriate Mm. yeah i read a couple of studies that talked about common barriers to to that sort of help seeking behavior Mm. and that was a, a big one that i found really interesting was that people will 
continuously alter their definition of what is the normal threshold mm-hmm. of stress. Mm-hmm. As life gets harder and harder, they will continuously move that barometer to go, no, 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 I'm still, I'm still in that normal spot. I still don't need help. I still don't need help. I had to think about that for a while because we talk about on this program about the importance of normalization yes. of things like mental health and wanting to reduce stigma. And I thought, well, is that having some sort of negative effects where people are normalising? No, everybody feels this way sometimes, so mm. I should be fine. But I think the problem comes when normalisation uh, crosses the line into minimisation. Mm. Why do we need to measure and relativise our distress mm. against somebody else's for it to be valid? I also saw this interview with this Lifeline telephone volunteer and he talked about the different calls that they might get in a shift. And obviously a lot of the calls might be people on the brink, people who are mm. really just in the depths of despair. But this one was he received a call from an elderly gentleman who'd lost his wife mm. uh, and he was trying to prepare dinner for himself and he realised, I don't know how to boil rice. Yeah. So he called Lifeline to say, you know, I'm all on my own now. I'm trying to do things that I've never done before. Can you help me mm. figure out how to boil rice? And I just thought that was so lovely. How important are those sort of early intervention moments? And that's one of the key things that Lifeline really would love the message to get out there. Early intervention creates long-term better results. Right. Why do we want people to ring Lifeline early? Because that man was struggling right then. Had he have left it, it would have been beyond boiling the rice. It would have been to, I don't even know if I want to get up in the morning. Yep. But to reach out and find out how to boil rice, he had human connection. Mm-hmm. He learned something, I'm sure, I hope, <laughs> the person was able to Hopefully support that. Yes. And he would have gotten a real human result from being that connected to another human being. Absolutely. Yeah. And Lifeline was really instigated for suicide prevention. I'll be honest, it feels scary to talk about suicide mm. on, on a program like this or, or generally mm. I think the community, mm. you still hear suicide is sort of spoken about in those hushed whispers mm. of should it be scary to talk mm. about suicide? I want to say no, <laughs> but it is a scary subject. We're talking yeah. about life or death. Yeah. Part of what we want to do with Lifeline and, and getting the message out there is to reduce that shame and stigma around suicide. Yeah. What all the research shows is that talking about suicide does not increase suicidal thoughts. Right. So the more that we do normalise the word and the topic, then people will reach out for help or accept help. Yeah. It's when it's hidden and not talked about and swept under the carpet, people's crisis and mental health builds up, builds up, builds up till they get to that crisis point where they do take their lives. Yeah. So we're wanting to get the conversations in there earlier yeah. so that way they have access to services with that suicide prevention yeah. at a lower level, like ringing up about the boiling rice. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what Lifeline is about. It's not measuring the asking for help. It's right. meeting people where they're at when they call and listening to what's happening for them right there at that moment in time. Human-to-human contact where there's non-judgment, where there's unconditional positive regard, those things translate to more, don't they? Yeah. And another way that you guys really offer that, which is a less less known about way, but that locally I think you guys are just knocking it out of the park with, is the support groups that you run. Can you tell us, Kelly, about Mm. those? 
Yeah, so we've got um, different support groups. We've got the Eclipse group. That's mm-hmm. for people that have attempted suicide. Right. And that's an eight-week psychosocial, psychoeducational support group where there's a curriculum where we've got different subjects each week. So it's a closed group. People start at week one and they end at week eight together. Great. Um, So that's for anyone that has survived a suicide attempt or Mm. several suicide attempts. Then we've got our bereavement support group and that's an open group for people that have lost a loved one to suicide. Mm. And that's where we have different topics each month and talk about question of why, what could I have done, the shame and guilt that the yeah. family have and yeah. um, um, unpacking some of that. We've also got a program for people um, that have just leaving the hospital after a suicide attempt and that's a, a peer-led program where we offer psychosocial support for people leaving the hospital system. So that's helping them go to appointments, advocating through the hospital system, linking them into local services, mm. etc. Uh, led by a peer worker that have survived a suicide attempt as well. So all of our programs are led by myself and we've just put on another group facilitator program coordinator, the same as me. And then we've got co-facilitators and all the co-facilitators have lived experience of suicide. So they've either had a suicide attempt themselves or they've lost a loved one to suicide. And that lived experience just really gets that connection and they've got their own language that they speak through their own wisdom and their own experiences. So that's where you see in the groups a lot of people get that connection with that lived experience and you can see them start to breathe again like they come in full of anxiety and full of all the troubles that that's in their lives and then once they hear another one's story that sort of alleviates their distress a lot I think once the distress goes down then you actually see them asking for help more so we've actually got busier and busier over the last few years because of the groups and people coming into the groups That's amazing. Um, so we're doing a lot of peer support and getting people into hospital before it's crisis, before they was, would come in and they'd get scheduled because they're going in via a police ambulance right. and going in in a really bad way. Yes. But now they're going in in a supported way with a peer support worker or they've learnt the skills through the groups to, to advocate for themselves and go back into the system when they're not doing well That's and they're amazing. not getting scheduled as much. There must be such an element of safety there because I would anticipate that for a lot of people that experience of being scheduled and hospitalization that's Mm. an extra trauma Mm. and necessary unfortunately sometimes but if there is a way to navigate that so that it can be less traumatic so that there can be a sense of agency in it and is that what people are are finding through the group you know what comes out of that for me and i i don't know that i've thought about it like quite like this before you said that when they meet the lived experience person They have a bond. Mm. And, you know, the hardest thing when I think about asking for help is the language, Mm. is the words. It comes right down to that. How do I say to you, I'm not feeling great or I need somebody to help me with my trampoline or, you know, whatever. That lived experience person, the barrier of how to say it Mm. has gone. That's right. So Mm. there's like this shared language That is so Mm. important. And it is very powerful in the groups. Mm. They'll pick up on each other when they're not doing well. It's an unspoken language. It's a feeling. We don't report anything back to their clinicians of what's going on in the group. They can talk about their suicidal thoughts. They can talk about suicidal plans. It's not going to be acted upon unless they're in danger to themselves at that moment in time. Right. When they admit those things to their clinicians, the clinicians have to act and have to follow that up. 
that makes people not want to admit it, That's doesn't right. it? And I imagine that it must just give them such a feeling of relief mm. to be in a group of other people with that same lived experience and not have to feel because there still is so much stigma in our mm. society around suicide. I mean, you think back in the day, like people who died by suicide couldn't be buried in church grounds and things like that. Like there was lost so their much. insurances. Mm. Yeah, those laws only changed ten years ago. Like oh. in church, mm. that kind of stigma is still so entrenched, and it must just be such a relief to sit down with somebody who has had that same experience and who's not touching you, who's not yes. you know, mm. and have it be normalized which, as you said, doesn't encourage suicide. No, and that's where our programs have been heavily researched. Mm. So we've got about five research papers that have come out of the Eclipse Group so far. The evidence of what we're collecting is that their resilience is going up by Mm. being at the group Mm -hmm. and their sense of burdensomeness is going down and their help-seeking behaviour is is going up. So, yeah, it's a pretty cool space to sit in and watch that. It's a very rewarding, it's a hard group. We talk about the hard stuff, but when you see them connecting and having aha moments, they may disclose that they've got no hope. They don't believe they'll ever get out of this. They they can't think of any other options but to die by suicide. But when you see them have an aha moment with each other, last week we had a guy who was very, he can't see any way out of his Mm. um, situation, but he connected with two other people when they were talking about their mental health and he said, when you talk, I feel like you're talking directly to me. You're talking for me. Yeah. What you're saying is exactly what's mm. in my head. Yeah, that's that's very rewarding. Oh, yeah, totally. when, when you see them have that and that just clicks something in their brain and relieves a bit of distress that hopefully mm. will um, get some cogs turning to mm. help them on their way. Yeah. Mm. And the word tribe comes to mind. <laughs> yeah. You know yeah. that, looking for your tribe. Ah, mm. Totally. Such an important thing for us. Mm. And... These groups are providing that opportunity mm. and why not, mm. you know, why not? I I just feel so warm when I think about mm. they've found their tribe, you know, yeah. they've got other people yeah. who can validate yeah. that mm. this is real and this happens yeah. and you do, people get through it, people do die. Right. But people get through it. Yeah. Mm. yeah it's sure. a hard road. Yeah. Mm. Let's talk about it. Yeah. So you said it's curriculum-based. What does that mean? What do you talk about? What are the subjects, I guess, that you go through? So some of the subjects we talk about is what causes my thoughts, mm. um, what are the daily triggers, the daily stresses, how do, then how do we cope with those thoughts. If I've, I've got a negative thought, how do I challenge that? How do mm. I check if that's real? Mm. How do I navigate a negative thought and sort of validate it but also move it around? We talk about um, how to find hope again. We talk about how to talk about suicide safely. Yep. We talk about resources, where to tap them into local resources. They share resources if it's a book or a podcast yeah, that they're great. listening to. So um, obviously you've shared our podcast. Yeah, sure. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Of course. And, and will be, especially this one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so the curriculum at the time when this group was being set up, there was no support group um, no. in Australia for yeah. suicide attempt survivors. So this curriculum comes from a centre in Los Angeles called Dee Dee Hirsch. Yep. So our CEO, they did a lot of research at the time and connected with these guys. They've adopted us um, and we're able to use their training. We, we, do, we all train with them yep. um, each year and um, we use their curriculum and they help us out with our studies and yep. um, research. You mentioned that something that you talk about is how do we talk about suicide safely? Mm. 
And I just want to dig into that briefly because I think that part of the reason that, that we do still talk about suicide and hush tones is because people worry that if I talk mm. about it, I might give someone the idea yeah. and maybe I will encourage them and, and I'll, you know, so I, I would prefer to go around this subject. But what we've seen mm. from what we've been talking about is, is talking about it actually reduces the risk. But how do we talk about it safely? So there's guidelines that we can follow. It's around our language. So in the groups, we're allowed to talk about suicide, suicidal feelings, suicidal plans. We just don't go into methods. Right. Um, Mainly because that can be triggering for someone else. Mm. So if they've tried the same method or if they hear that, that could be be triggering for Mm. them. The other word that we don't use is the word commit. Mm. And I might get Di to talk a little bit more on that. And we use a service called Mindframe who look at the language that's acceptable around certain topics. So we don't use the word commit because you commit a crime. Right. And yes, it used to be a crime. So it's very much away from that. So people consider suicide, they die by suicide, they are thinking of suicide. And I think to add to that, die is the framework for Lifeline. Mm -hmm. It's very purposeful. Mm. So... We don't just bring up suicide, you know, you don't go to a barbecue and um, say, start talking about suicide. (laughs) There's a purpose behind, like we're we're trained to listen to certain words and certain Mm. what we call invitations Mm. in a conversation Mm -hmm. and then they're picked up on and then they're reflected and paraphrased and and then comes in the conversation. So it's about making sure it's purposeful, it's meaningful. And it's um, respectful. And it's respectful. But also um, when we're having those conversations with people, we're not re-traumatising them Mm. or re-triggering them. So we're kind of guiding Mm. the conversation with the framework as well. Mm. So so it keeps safe for everybody. And, you know, it's a good thing for people that might be listening to this podcast to know that they are no burden when they reach out for help. Our crisis supporters, the team that Kelly works with, we're safe. Yeah. We have good supports around us. We are well-educated. We've got all the resources that we need. Therefore, asking or speaking about it or talking to us Mm. is of no burden to us. In fact, it's what we know helps and we want to support and be there. But I think that's a good message to get out is we're okay and you talk to us and we'll still be okay. Yeah, absolutely. That's Mm. great permission. In terms of... The people that do call and encouraging people to ask for help. Is it working? How often are people calling Lifeline? What's the stats there? So during COVID, we we were over 3,000 calls a day and we are still around 3,000 calls a day. So what it proves is that, as you said earlier, there is a culture in Australia that Lifeline's there Mm. and it's Mm 24-7. We've also expanded that to it. We have a text for good now and we have a web-based chat line as well. Which I think is incredible. Which is all meeting the needs of what people are saying, hey, we want to ask for help, so give us all the avenues. So now we've got the web and we've got the text and we've got the phone. I think it's working because it's everyday Aussies reaching out to everyday Aussies. Yeah, Crisis supporters are you and me. They're everyday people who've got big hearts, who are well-trained, who are Mm well-supported and who – really sincerely know that listening to somebody else at a time when they can't boil rice or they're going to take their own life, but they're there. Mm. And a a young guy once said to me, when I call Lifeline, 
I know the person wants to listen to me because they've volunteered to be there. So they want to be there. He said, when I go to my psychologist, he's paid to listen to me and I don't feel like he's really going down to that depth with me Mm. like a lifeline Mm. call would. That's Mm. so interesting. So, yeah. Yeah. And that was from a young, he was only about 16 and I thought, wow. Yeah. It's got great, great insight. Totally. Yeah. Mm. And I feel mm. like as well I love the addition of the text line and the mm. web-based chat because someone like me who has to mm. like give myself a pep talk to call my hairdresser. Yes. You know, <laughs> yes. the ability yeah. to just text oh. and not have that pressure of I've got to talk on the phone. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. incredible. It must just make it so accessible. It makes it accessible. It makes it more confidential because mm. if I've considered reading Lifeline at 3 o'clock in the morning but I don't want to wake my husband up. Right. Huh? So, you know, texting is much or or the web. Yeah. You, there's no voice, yeah. so people can do it a little bit more privately if yeah. that's what they want. Yeah. You guys don't only offer training to Lifeline volunteers, do you? We offer training in the community. Yeah. The one that's getting the most traction at the moment is the accidental counsel yes. one because yes. it's practical. Yeah. So if I want to do that, if mm. I say I want to do the accidental counsel training, mm. what do I need to do? Look on our our um, webpage, you'd see advertising for it when it's coming up into the community. Great. You could ring your local Lifeline Centre and they're listed in the phone or you can go on lifeline.org.au and see what's available in your area. Yes. We sell it to corporates as well. Yes. There's organisations out there that are employing us to train for their staff. Great idea. And that's a great opportunity for people. It's good uh, team building yeah. but it's also good uh, PD. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, I mean, if you're a local Port Macquarie Hastings person, you might even have the opportunity to be trained by the best trainer ever. So <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going That could say. go to my head, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it should die. I mean, deservedly. Last time we talked, we spoke about how we need to stop asking people yeah. to reach out. In their darkest moment, we need to reach in. If we could make that a mantra, mm. let's learn how to reach in and stop asking people who are in crisis yeah. to reach out. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming in, guys. It's been fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, Really valuable stuff to talk about. I think we'd love to have you back at some point. Yes. Oh, we'd love love it. 100% want to do this accidental counselling course. Um, (laughs) We should say that if anything that we've spoken about on this program Mm. has brought anything up for anybody listening, has been distressing or triggering in any way, even if you just need a hand to boil some rice. Yes. um, Give Lifeline a call, 13 11 14. They are always there. And also please remember to... Have a look at the people around you, reach in. If you think someone might uh, need to ask for help, it is a hard barrier to break. So, um, yeah, mm. again, thank you very much thank for coming you. in. Thank you. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Enables. Thanks see so ya. much. Bye. This episode is sponsored by Ability Advocators, high-quality, personalised supports in disability and mental health.